0: Good afternoon. Hope you're doing well. Um, I've missed seeing some of your faces. We've been over at the Monday evening service at, at the Renfield Centre for the last four or five weeks, and it's been going really well. Uh, it's been great to kind of welcome a bunch of new people in, um, so it's been great, but we have been missing uh, seeing many of you guys, so it's so good to see your faces again. Um, we are... Is that a bit loud, Joe? Okay. We are continuing in the Book of Ephesians this morning. Uh, we have been in there since kind of March time, uh, and what we've seen so far is that God loves His people. He's brought us into the light. He's set us free. And if you know the Book of Ephesians, you'll know that the first three or so chapters are very much about that—what God has done—and then the back half, which we entered into a couple of weeks ago, is about how we respond to what God has done for us. So we're firmly in the "how do we respond" section this uh, this afternoon. And really what I want us to think about this afternoon is how uh, we would live if we took seriously the fact that we are now in God's light. What would a transformed life look like? And so just to give you an idea of where we're going to go, we're going to really simply just look at two things. The first is that Paul calls us to take off the old self, and then we want to think about what it means to put on the new life. So uh, let me read for us. We're in Ephesians 4 this afternoon, starting in verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, whoever, did not come to know Christ that way, surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. To God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenities, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Let me pray for us before we start. Father, we just declare again together that you are truth, that you have spoken and every word you've spoken is true and good and Lord we place ourselves underneath the authority of your word. God we ask that you would speak and God we praise you that there's a new life on offer to us Lord. We don't have to live in the darkness now but we can in Jesus be transformed into the image of your son Lord. So would you come today, would you do a work with us and in us uh, by the power of your spirit Lord. I pray that you would speak uh, this afternoon. We love you. And we pray for your spirit to come now. Amen. Okay, so the first thing we're going to look at this morning is that Paul calls us to take off the old self. But before we get to the meat of that, I want you to really see something at the start of this passage. And that's that gospel transformation is absolutely crucial. It's a necessity. Have a look at verse 17 to begin. He says, I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul is realistic, right? He knows that we have these kind of two fatal tendencies when it comes to thinking about the law and God's commands and how we live. And to help us see what these two tendencies are, why don't we think about this analogy of going on holiday and you go to New York City and the time difference is six hours and your watch, well not your watch, the time changes. You get to New York and it's six hours earlier than you expect it to be. So the first fatal tendency that we would have is is to try and do lots of stuff, obey all these commands to make God love us. Right? The Bible will say that that is like sitting in your living room, changing the time on your watch, and thinking that that makes it a different time. Like you are utterly powerless, the Bible says, to do anything about your standing in God. The first utterly fatal tendency is what the book of Ephesians has been addressing for three chapters. Right? Paul is desperate at the start of this book. He says in chapter 3, you're saved by grace alone, not by works, so that nobody can boast. He's desperate to let us know that without Jesus, there's nothing we can do to make God love us, to come into his kingdom. But praise God, what we've seen in the first three chapters is that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, King of Kings, has put on flesh and walked among us and died For our sins, Paul puts an absolute final nail in the coffin of that flaw in our thinking that we can please God by what we do, and he reminds us it's all Jesus. In other words, God has changed the time zone of the universe from from darkness to light. It was nighttime spiritually, and now it's day. And changing your watch won't do anything either way to change that. But as we've kind of pivoted into the second half of this book. Paul wants to really address our kind of second fatal tendency, which is to fall into what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Christian during the Second World War in Germany, he called this cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea that I have been saved by grace. It's a free gift of God, and therefore I don't need to do anything afterwards. It doesn't demand anything of me. This is the attitude that says, mansion in heaven, yes, check, check, stop sinning never never but that is not how this works imagine that you landed in New York to go on holiday and um, you're aware that it's a different time zone your watch is six hours out but you think ah like this time and this watch has worked for me before so you go to bed at three in the afternoon and you're up all night and you just think I just won't change the time it'll be fine Well, it seems a bit ludicrous, but we do the exact same thing spiritually, that the nature of reality in Jesus has changed. We've been shifted, the Bible says, from darkness to light, from one kingdom to another. And so surely our way of life should change. We should bring our lives into accordance with what God is doing. This isn't extracurricular. If we want to receive the new life of God, we have to be prepared to actually live in it. Eugene Peterson uh, says this. He says, God is not in the business of problem solving. He's in the business of people creating. So that means that God is not content to forgive you and then just say, hey, I love them. They're just a forgiven sinner. He wants to make you a faithful son or a faithful daughter. God wants you to bask in the light of his life. To rescue you from a wasted life of living for yourself. And so our second tendency, the tendency towards cheap grace, is what Paul is going to address in our chapters this morning. So let's keep going. We must not live as the Gentiles do because they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God's. I uh, used to work for the Prince's Trust for about six months. And uh, we, we took the, the teenagers uh, kind of once every 12 weeks to Ockham Gillan Outdoor Centre to do a kind of residential. And uh, one of the activities that we done when we were there was called the Night Line. So uh, you would basically have this obstacle course out in the woods and you'd go out there in the middle of the night, you'd blindfold everyone and you'd kind of try and navigate this obstacle course. And it's great fun, but it's really fun when you don't have a blindfold on And you follow the kids and you just hold branches in front of their faces. So they're trying to get through and they kind of hit this thing that they think is a tree. So they do this and they think, okay, I've got past it. And they do it again. And you just follow them around. They just like cannot understand where these trees are coming from. They have no idea where to go. They're fumbling around in the darkness. And Paul is going to draw an equivalence between these fumbling, blindfolded, confused teenagers... And us when we attempt to navigate life without the illuminating, shining, glorious light of God. So the implication for us is that the blindfold is off. Don't go back to fumbling around in the darkness. Just like those blindfolded teenagers, we need someone to tell us what way to go. They needed someone who could see to say jump or duck or go right or go left we need to say we need to listen to the one whose light lights up all things as he tells us how to live how to navigate this life paul carries on in verse 19 he says about the gentiles having lost all sensitivity they have given themselves over to indulge in every kind of impurity Bible's getting at something here, and that's that sin isn't just a series of bad behaviors, this kind of conscious choice that we make kind of case-by-case basis. It's something that actually the Bible says is all-consuming. If sin were blue, we would be blue all over. Every part of us is fallen. Every part of us lived in sin. And when we're given over to sin and utterly separated from the life of God, we find that we have this Kind of callousing over our heart. So just like my left hand has calloused fingers from playing guitar, which means that I don't feel the pain of the strings anymore, our hearts just don't feel the prick of the Holy Spirit, the prompting and the nudging of God's commands. We shut ourselves off to what He wants to say and do to us. And we all come to Jesus with hearts like this. We all came. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you came to Him with baggage and in fact when the light of jesus shines into your life you actually become more aware of how broken you are and if you haven't become aware let me promise you that you are more messed up than you think you are but it would not be good news if god saw you in that sin said what a mess i'm just going to forgive him and then leave him to just stay in that mess it wouldn't be good news at all What we're saying this afternoon is that God is up to more in the world than just sin management. He's up to heart renovation. So don't live like the Gentiles do, Paul says. Don't keep living your old life. Take off the old self. What's the alternative? Live like Jesus does. Dallas Willard, in his book The Divine Conspiracy, which is just a wonderful book, uh, he writes this. He says, strangely we seem prepared to learn to live from almost anyone but Jesus. And where we spontaneously look for information on how to live shows how we truly feel and who we really have confidence in. And nothing more forcibly demonstrates the extent to which we automatically assume the irrelevance of Jesus as a teacher for our real lives. Willard is saying that there's an endemic In the Western Church. Of trusting Christ for salvation. But not trusting that he knows what he's talking about. When it comes to how to live. We ask this question all the time. What would Jesus do? Dallas Willard says stop asking what would Jesus do. Ask what would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if you were me? And he says that because. What we're talking about this morning isn't pie in the sky. It's not, how do I become a more religious person? How do I become a better church goer? It's no, how do I find the life of God coursing through my veins when I go to my job as a software engineer? When my kids wake me up at four in the morning crying, how do I have the life of God coursing through me? This is real. It's not extracurricular. It's about today. It's about our real lives. And that's why I want us to get really practical in the second half of our time together. But for now, let me just say this. We, we have to learn from Jesus. We have to become disciples or apprentices or students or whatever you want to say of Jesus of Nazareth. See, in our rightful desperation to clarify that Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher, we, I think, have forgotten that he was a good moral teacher we've forgotten that we are called to yes worship him as lord yes trust him with our salvation but also to look to him for guidance on how to live jesus was not just a moral teacher and we praise god for that if he was we would have no hope but he was the greatest moral teacher to ever live so learn from him Some have put it this way, get into the slipstream of Jesus. This is what Paul means in verses 20 and 21. He says, that, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Don't fumble around in the darkness. Learn from Jesus, whose life, St. John said, was the light of men take off the old and put on the new. We said earlier that discipleship is about becoming who Jesus would be if he were me. And uh, I use that definition because if we don't think about our real lives in this discussion, we run the risk of thinking that sanctification, what God wants to do in me now by the power of the Holy Spirit is really only about religion. I just encourage you that today, And tomorrow are not warm ups. I have this tendency, I don't know if you do, to think about my future and think, my faith is going to be so strong. I'm going to be such a great evangelist. I'm going to be in the Bible every day. My prayer life will be absolutely killing it. But that fantasy does not exist. Today exists. Whether you're 18 or 80 years old, today is the day that God has made for you to live in holiness. In the real job, real marriage, real friendships that you have. So how would Jesus live if he were you? That's the question that we each of us need to answer. It's the question we need to figure out. What does it actually mean to put on this new self? Well, I want us to think about three distinct areas in which we are called to be like Jesus. And they are we want to talk like Jesus. We want to walk like Jesus. And we want to love like Jesus. Jesus. Let's think first about talking like Jesus. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed 30,000 homes, killed 300 people, and completely and utterly charred three and a half miles of city. The, The military came to put it out, and the only way that they could stop it was to just destroy every house in its path, to stop it from having fuel to just keep on spreading. But this huge raging fire that cost so many lives started like this. There was a a woman, Mrs. O'Leary. She was on her farm in Chicago and she's milking her cows. And one of her cows just kind of startles and kicks out. And it kicks a lantern over and the lantern just kind of sets fire to some hay. And that is how the great Chicago fire started. It started to spread and it ravaged the city. Well, the brother of Jesus, James, wrote these words and he compared the power of our speech to a spark that starts a blazing fire. Here's what he said. He said, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself. Set on fire by hell. those are such harsh words. but his point is so clear, and it's that what we say is powerful. Think about fire. it's dangerous. If you lose control of fire in a minute, it, over, it overwhelms you. It's scary. but it's also a really powerful tool for good. If we as humans hadn't figured out how to harness fire, we wouldn't have hot foods, we wouldn't have warmth, we wouldn't have electricity. Our being able to control fire has brought out so much good in uh, our lives, but it is dangerous and it can be terrifying. Our words are the same. From your mouth, you can either spew out forest fire-like destruction or provide nurturing, encouraging warmth to those who hear you. Just like a fire, you have unbelievable capacity for evil and for good in what you say how we speak is going to have profound implications for how we model the life and character of Jesus as we go about our days. So what do we see in Ephesians 4 and 5 of how to speak? Well, Paul's main principle, and uh, he has more than one principle, but I had to delete a lot this this afternoon. So we're only going to look at one principle, and his main one is speaking uh, like Jesus by speaking with encouragement. Verse 29 of chapter 4 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I came across this story this week uh, in the Gospel Coalition about Eugene Peterson's funeral. And his son, I think you pronounce his name, Leif Peterson, he, uh, he'd done the eulogy. And in the eulogy he says, My dad had one message And that message was in his bones and it's all that drove him for 50 years. And he remembers this story um, where all through his childhood his dad would sneak into his room in the middle of the night and he would be kind of pretending to be asleep and his dad would whisper over him as he slept these words, God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. Decades later, Leif Peterson is at his dad's funeral and remembers it crystal clearly. Words like that have lasting power. Let me ask you this question. If you drop dead this evening, how would people remember the way that you speak? Would your words have pointed people to Jesus? Would your defining message have been, God loves you? God is on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Or would it be something altogether less encouraging? Will our children, our friends, our colleagues look back on our relationships and remember words that pointed to God that encouraged? Or will they remember the discouragement, the snide comments, the I don't feel like I'm ever good enough for them? Our words are going to have a profound impact on the people around us as we navigate this life. Do you believe that? If we take the Bible at its word, if we believe what James said, that your words are like a spark that can create glorious warming fire or forest fire destruction, do we believe that what we say on a daily basis will impact how God moves in the world, will impact the life that others live for decades Make it your aim to speak only when what you say will be beneficial. Only when what you say will bring more of God and his goodness and his life into this world. For some of us, that means the best way to honor God with our mouths is to use them less. And that is true for me. I'm painfully aware of that. But let's really strive. When we speak, make it encouraging. Make it God-honoring. Another area we need to examine is our tendencies to gossip. Gossip is verbal poison, isn't it? You know encouragement, when someone says something encouraging to you, it just has the aroma of Christ. Gossip has the stench of death. It's poisonous. When you gossip, you invite everyone that's listening to you to say, I'm never going to trust them again. You tear down and you destroy and you mock because you're not confident enough in yourself. You don't have enough faith in what God is doing in you to feel that you can stand without tearing others down. But it's never true. That's never true that knocking someone down a peg will lift you up. All you'll do is drag yourself down with them, and you will drown in this sin. You know, gossip is evil. It is addictive. And if you're a Christian, you must utterly shun it let's resolve today as a family to stop gossiping to stop wrapping up gossip in prayer requests do you hear about so and so like they just really need your prayer this week because they're blah 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 do you know that that's taking the name of God in vain and we we all do it let's leave that behind us you know Jesus' words were often harsh They were never venomous they were never poisonous they were never hypocritical let's speak like jesus let's challenge ourselves this week speak less let's hold our tongues and when we do speak let's make it encouraging let's make it god magnifying and us minimizing that's how we're going to have a legacy in our speech not by shouting the loudest trying to be funny trying to get the first word in but by listening and encouraging with gentleness by pointing to Jesus and what we say. Let's keep going. Paul calls us to talk like Jesus, but he's also going to call us to walk like Jesus. There's two commands here that I want to lump together, and the first one's in verse 28, and it says, Anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work, doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need second one is chapter 5 verse 3 it says among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people and I want to lump these together under the idea of walking like Jesus so where our first set of commands looks at what we do with our tongues these look at what we do with our bodies how do we engage with the world around us and the general pattern of these verses is stop take take taking give you know in the book of acts we get an insight into paul's relationship with the church in ephesus It's the church that was receiving this letter and in acts chapter 20 paul is leaving ephesus and he says this in everything i did i showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak remembering the words that the lord jesus himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive I need to notice something about those words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus is not issuing a command. He doesn't say, "Give more and take less." He's just explaining reality. It is more blessed to give than receive. This afternoon, Jesus is inviting you into that reality. You have a choice when you hoard and won't give and just take, 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 you're not only sinning, you're living in delusion. You're not living in the real world. If we're going to take Jesus at his word as the great moral teacher that we've established that he is, then let's enter into lives of blessed generosity. Because Jesus was right. It is more blessed to give than to receive. He knew what he was talking about. Now, I don't think that many of us in this room have a history of burglary. So, uh, Paul's words about not stealing probably fall on deaf ears a little bit. But, um, you know, the early church, the first kind of couple of centuries after Jesus, yet the, uh, the church fathers were really kind of unanimous in their understanding of this, that having but failing to give is the equivalent of stealing from the poor. Let me read these words to you. I encourage you to not view these words as being radical and and weird, but let God speak to you through them. These are the words of St. Basil the Great. He was an ancient Turkish bishop. He says, when somebody steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. Should we not give the same name to one who could clothe the naked and does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to those who need it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. And the money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. That hurts me. (laughs) I just think that's hard to hear. Can we not callous our hearts? Can we let the Spirit of God shine in and show us where we're living lives of cursed greed rather than blessed generosity. You know, the heart of the gospel is a father who, out of the overflow of his generous heart, gives his only son to die for you. And you know, when John the Baptist is preaching and teaching, and someone comes to him uh, and says, sorry, John the Baptist says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Somebody comes to him and says, how then should I live? What should I do? John the Baptist says, if you have two cloaks, give one away to the poor. The significance of that is that repentance is not just about changing your mind. It's not just about, man, I'm going to stop believing X, Y, and Z. I'm going to start believing that Jesus is king and that the Holy Spirit is this and blah, blah, blah. It's a change of heart. It's a decision to turn around and enter into the giving, generous heart of God. If you take the name of Jesus for yourself, you have to live like him. You have to enter into his heart. And his heart is generous and gentle and kind. So, where are you hoarding? Maybe it's time. Students, you are billionaires in time. Are you using it for your own good, to have fun, to drink good coffee, all these kind of things? Or are you pouring it out for the good of your neighbor and the glory of God? Maybe it's money. Do you save for your summer holidays with far more passion than you want to give to God, the church, and the poor? Maybe you want to make it a priority to reduce your giving and increase, reduce your spending. Please don't reduce your giving. And increase your giving. (laughs) Maybe you're hoarding your possessions. If that's you, why don't we aim this week to strip down, to give away, to simplify. Whatever it is, let's spur one another on to get to the finish line of life, not having just accumulated and hoarded in comfort, but by pouring ourselves out, doing what Jesus done, get to the finish line of life in love, in generosity. We are called to love like Jesus. The journey of the Christian faith, this adventure into Christ likeness, is a journey of becoming people of love. Becoming people of love. If I speak in the tongues of angels and men but don't have love, that's what the Apostle Paul says, then I am nothing. I'm a resounding symbol, I'm an empty noise. So we can speak all we want about greed and gossip today i think you can you leave here and try and behave better if you don't have love we've missed the point spectacularly if you leave here and are really convinced that you should do more social justice but you're not convinced that you should enter into a life of love i've failed this afternoon you know a young man approached jesus once and he asked him something similar to what we were asking this morning he asked him lord what is the greatest commandment maybe we could change that to what are all these laws about i don't want to read them all boil it down for me jesus says first love the lord your god with your heart soul mind and strength and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself the son of god himself Summarize the entire law of God in one word, love. This is not for hippies. This isn't me being like ultra liberal. This is me saying the son of God himself says the whole of God's law is about living a life of love. Here's how our passage puts it. Chapter 5, verse 1, follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's handy that Paul reminds us of how Jesus loved. Just in case we forgot, just in case we were tempted to think that the love of Jesus is something easy to emulate. To love like Jesus is not just to like others a lot, not just to be an extrovert, to be really outgoing, to have tons of friends. To love like Jesus is to lay yourself down for others. It's to leave behind the life of me, me, me. To leave behind, I'm going to wake up in the morning and think about my needs and my wants and to embrace the cross-shaped way of Jesus. A Puritan from the 1600s said that Christ was the love covered over in flesh, love covered over in flesh, So above all else, come home to love today, come home to Jesus with no prerequisites, no entry requirements, no conditions, come to Jesus, and then become like Jesus, you are a front-line outpost of the coming kingdom of God in this world. The choice is yours whether you stay in the darkness or live in the light. Our series in Ephesians is called Life to Live because God has already done this. There is a new life available to us while we walk in it. Take off your old self. Put on the new life the god-fashioned life the life that basks in the light of god and the life that talks walks and loves like jesus let me pray for us holy spirit i invite you to come And Lord, I invite you to burst through the tough layer of skin that we've developed around our conscience. Lord, burst in and reveal to us what we need to take off and what we need to put on. Father, we praise you that because of Jesus, there's a new life. We don't walk in the darkness. We don't fumble around now, but we walk into your light so Lord I just pray for us that we would live in the reality of that that we would live not like those who don't know God but like those who are basking in his light Lord would you change us would you convict us would you make us more like Jesus you repent of when we have failed to follow him when we have looked at him and thought I'll take his benefits but I won't take his wisdom God we together. We want to come under the wisdom and the teaching of, of Jesus. We want to learn from him. We want to live like him. So help us, Holy Spirit, point out to us where we need to change, where we need to repent, and where we need to take on the new self. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite Ian up, who's going to lead us in a time of communion.